This is a Federal News Network podcast. The inspectors general for two intelligence agencies were each overpaid by tens of thousands of dollars between 2016 and 2020. That's according to an internal DOD memo a whistleblower supplied to Empower Oversight, an outside watchdog group. There's no clear evidence anyone intentionally did anything wrong. There's also no evidence the money's been repaid or whether the matter's been properly investigated. Jason Foster is founder and president of Empower Oversight. He spoke with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu about what we know and don't know. The memo was provided to the DOD Inspector General's office, and it walks through the relevant legal authorities for inspector general pay because inspector general pay is you know set by statute and inspectors general are senior officials who are subject to a pay freeze and so the memo went through and concluded and reported uh, findings to the DODIG that these two inspectors general at NSA and NRO um, you know had been according to this official at DOD overpaid the amounts of approximately total for one of the IGs and approximately $150,000 total for the other IG. Um, And this is over a, you know, multiple year timeframe. And you're fairly confident at this point that that memo is authentic, even though it was not provided to you from an official source of any kind. Yes. uh, So we, uh, we attached a copy of the memo to our FOIA requests to all the agencies that we asked about it. And, you know, in our FOIA request, we explicitly said that, you know, we had received it from an anonymous source and and couldn't independently authenticate it. However, since we sent those FOIA requests, uh, we were contacted by um, by multiple other sources who did authenticate the memo, who we know who they are, and they were they are in a position to know that it's an authentic memo. And I believe you've seen a response from the NSA IG that basically just indicates this was a clerical error that he knew nothing about at the time. Anything similar from NRO so far? No, we've had no contact from NRO. And, um, you know, I would note just that the the amount for the NRO IG, the total amount of alleged overpayments is much higher. It's much more significant um, with the, you know, in one case, it was just the NSA IG got a cost of living increase that the DOD memo says he wasn't entitled to. However, with the NRO IG, you know, you're talking about overpayments of over $40,000 a year for several years, totaling, you know, about 150 grand. Yeah. Can you unpack that one maybe a little bit more? Because that one, it, it, it looks as, for one thing, it spans over more years than the NSA IG overpayments did. But also it looks in that case as though the official started at a higher salary than would have been entitled to under law and then continued to get increases year after year after that. Yeah, that's exactly correct. So we, we lay out the numbers uh, from the memo uh, in our FOIA request. Um, and, you know, this is, um, again, the, these are approximate and we don't have access to the underlying records. We just have the summary memo that the DOD provided to the DODIG. And, and you know, according to that memo, the overpayments were about 5000 in 2016, about 20000 in 2017, about 38,000 in 2018, about 40,000 in 2019, and about 45,000 in 2020. I mean, this is significantly above the level at what uh, an executive level, I think it's executive level three, I think is the pay cap for a presidentially important inspector general. And I know, I know you said you've not gotten any official responses from NRO yet, but is there any document in your possession or anything that, that you've seen that would lead you to come up with some reason why this might have happened in that case? I mean, I have a little bit of insight, again, from sources who contacted me, you know, after we sent the FOIA request is sort of what the backstory was, you know, when, when this memo came over to the DODIG, 
they then referred it to the Council of Inspectors General Integrity Committee, which is sort of the self-policing body for inspectors general uh, to see if there was any potential uh, investigation that that body ought to do. I don't know whether they also informed the White House or Congress or anyone else, but because the DODIG is the one who referred it to the integrity committee, uh, you know, there were concerns about potential retaliation if, because the NSA IG is the nominee to be the new DODIG. Right. Right. And so it's, it's the office that he would be taking over where people had you know, just doing their what they thought was their duty referred it to, you know, for potential inquiry. And we, we raised questions about why the integrity committee didn't look at it and how can this not have been elevated to responsible people in the political branches, either in Congress or, you know, or the White House. Um, and sort of how, you know, it's just sort of perplexing, like, how could this happen without anybody knowing and without it being public? You know, you don't have accidental pay raises going to to other IGs, and I don't know if it's because they're national security components, and so there's just not as much transparency um, or what the explanation is. Uh, let's unpack that Siggy piece a little bit. I think I think the allegation in your original whistleblower communication was was not only was Siggy aware that these overpayments had happened and didn't really do any kind of investigation, but may have also alerted the people who would have been the subjects of the investigation. Is that right? That's correct. So the source who provided the memo to us also alleged that in SIGI meetings, you know, there was essentially a heads up to the other IGs and said, hey, this is this is this is something that came into the integrity committee and you should double check and make sure your houses are in order. Right. Basically, there's going to be scrutiny on this. So, you know, there was, a, like I said, essentially a, a heads up to everyone to make sure that they weren't in a similar position. I want to stress, I don't think there's really any hard evidence at this point that, that there was any impropriety on the on, on the part of Siggy or, frankly, anyone else at this point, because we just haven't seen the documents yet. But does the, this kind of structure give you any kind of pause just in terms of how inspectors general are overseen? It, it is really, as you said, really just a self-policing body where the inspectors general themselves are really the only oversight they have other than each of their respective agency directors, or am I missing something? Right. And Congress, and right. Congress. I mean, and technically, you know, Siggy, um, you know, there's an OMB official who is part of Siggy by statute. So that's supposed to be the line of uh, oversight to the White House, you know, but again, you know, with my background working years and years uh, on issues around the IG community from Capitol Hill, you know, my concern is there needs to be transparency and oversight and questions being asked from from Capitol Hill about these things. I mean, this is ultimately the structure, as you said, it is largely a self-policing structure. The integrity committee itself, you know, the NSA IG was the was the vice chair of the integrity committee at the time this report came in and so had to recuse himself. Uh, my understanding is he did properly, as I would expect. He recused himself from any consideration of this particular matter. But the standards are very opaque and vague as to what the integrity committee will open an investigation on and what it won't open an investigation on. Um, and there has there has been a lot of dissatisfaction on Capitol Hill over the years uh, with the integrity committee's performance. It seems to be either too aggressive in some cases uh, for some reasons and not aggressive enough in other cases. Um, and you know, there's no sort of coherent explanation for why they will open up an investigation on some and not open investigations on others. And my argument, you know, from the time, even from when I was on Capitol Hill as a staffer dealing with Siggy and its leadership was, you know, look, you need to manage, you need to manage this situation when you have a problem like this that has 
the potential to to tarnish the reputation of the inspector general community writ large, you know, you need to show some some leadership and and make sure that it's raised to the political branches to deal with, and that folks on the Hill and the folks in the White House, you know, know when there's an issue and can step in and resolve it one way or the other. To the best of your knowledge, is anyone on the Hill actively looking into this? We published an update to our press release that included questions for the record from Senator Josh Hawley, who had asked the NSAIG about the overpayments in the course of his confirmation uh, proceedings, uh, because he's the nominee to be the new DOD inspector general. And so uh, that's the only one where I know, you know, we were provided a copy of the answer uh, that the NSA inspector general provided to Senator Hawley's office in response to that question for the record. But, you know, I know that 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 nomination hasn't moved forward in the last several weeks and, uh, uh, you know, that there were attempts to to hotline it and to have it passed by UC and that that hasn't occurred yet. Just one more question on transparency. Um, Beyond transparency around policies, which you called opaque a second ago, what else could or should SIGI be doing to make the whole process that they run more transparent and, and, as you said, increase that or maintain that level of trust that everybody needs to have in the IG community? Well, we tried to impose some of that transparency back in 2016 when I worked on the uh, IG Empowerment Act, and we had there were there was dissatisfaction then on both sides of the aisle about the uh, speed with which integrity committee investigations were being completed, and we passed at that time a, a reporting requirement uh, that said that when you have an investigate when the integrity committee has an investigation on an IG that's open for more than I think it's 180 days you know, that then you have to send a report up to Congress, you know, with an explanation. Well, since I've been off the Hill and I'm now in this role, you know, in a watched outside watchdog organization, we actually FOIA'd a whole bunch of those reports. They're not routinely made public. The statute didn't require them to make public. So, so if Congress doesn't post them or put them out, then nobody sees them. And, you know, when we got them, we were sort of shocked by how little information is actually in them. So, you know, they're constantly punting on these investigations. They stay open for, extremely long periods of time. And then they send these perfunctory reports up to Congress, technically satisfying the statute, but really not telling you much about why it's taking so long. There were some people who wanted, who had argued for, um, you know, actual caps, you know, requirements that, look, you got to finish this investigation within X amount of time or, uh, you know, or something, you know, some kind of consequence occurs, um, you know, but they fought that. And, and, you know, we sort of had this compromise of a reporting requirement, but it doesn't seem to be doing much. So I, and I know that there's talk among, you know, among good government groups on the outside across the ideological spectrum about, you know, readdressing integrity committee reforms, because nobody seems to be happy with the progress uh, on either side. Jason Foster, founder and president of Empower Oversight, talking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. We'll post this interview plus a link to the group's findings so far at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, 
and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my my mind to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about. As a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.